Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 85. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Matt, you still hanging out by the front door? I am by the front door. I'm in my kitchen sweating my bag off for you folks. No fans. I have an ice pack literally on my taint. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a great idea. I'm surprised that no one else has mentioned that before. Maybe that's what I need over here. Yeah. I mean, it is the most sensitive part of the body and the <laughs> yeah. longest end of the lever. So that's where I want to cool. Yeah. So today, something we wanted to talk about based on a lot of listener feedback, actually, was Final Fantasy VII. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we wanted to talk. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> the Open Guard. We're thinking of doing a multi-part series on the Open Guard. Of course, when you say the Open Guard, there's a whole family of guards that fall under that bucket. And the funny thing about jiu-jitsu, and I know Rob and Rory have talked about this, is when you train jiu-jitsu, usually most places start with the closed guard. It's considered this very fundamental position, and it's one of the things that new people are really encouraged to focus on. But in reality, I think that learning open guards is probably actually more effective out of the gate. And I would like to talk about the closed guard at some point, but the open guard is also such a big and rich topic because there's so many variants about it. There's so many different strategies that you can employ to the point where we couldn't really conceivably do a whole series on this in one single episode. So we're probably going to break this down into five episodes or so with each episode having a particular focus. And today that focus will be Delaheva guard. So the interesting thing about uh, you mentioned Rob and Rory and how they do the closed guard or how how they approach closed guard at Island Top Team. And it's an interesting approach. I believe they actually don't allow beginners to do closed guard until they have uh, at least two stripes. I could be wrong. It could even be more than that. But that's kind of funny because when I was a white belt, closed guard was like my jam. Like that was like my main position. And I guess the whole reason that they don't do that is because if you have really strong legs, you know, and you're rolling with other guys, other beginners, then you basically just funnel your game towards holding the closed guard. But as soon as your guard gets open, you don't really have any uh, guard retention movements or, or you don't really get time to build other guards like half guards and things like that. So I have mixed feelings towards that approach. I understand why he does that. But I also think that closed guard is kind of a, a great position for beginners. And I think it's actually a great guard to build your fundamental game on. So, you know, we, we see it at all levels and, and at the highest level, it's you know, it's still really dangerous. So I don't know that I agree with it. We don't do it at my school. We, we allow all guards for all levels, but yeah, interesting approach with the closed guard. I do like how at Rob's gym at 
beginner level, you're not allowed to do closed guard, but you are allowed to do heel hooks and dick posts. Yeah. Like it's like the opposite of the IBJJF. Yeah. And face cranks, <laughs> totally fine, you know, but no closed guard. <laughs> but I, we, I do understand like, you know, if we do King of the Hill, which is basically like an elimination drill game, we'll do King of the Hill a few times a week where you have few guys in the middle. It's basically like a shark tank. And you have to earn your way into the middle and you have to like fight to keep your position. And usually the person in the middle is playing a variation of seated guard or something like that. And and uh, it, it, if the person on top ends up in the closed guard, then we basically count that as a loss because, yeah, you, you can be there for so long and uh, it really slows the game down. But it definitely needs to be drilled. Like escaping closed guard against a good guy is a fucking pain in the ass. So. Yeah, I don't really know how I feel about effectively holding people back from using closed guard. I understand where that comes from. At a lot of gyms back in the day where I started training, they took a similar approach to where you started training, which is where for new students, they start on day one. And one of the first things they learn is closed guard. And it's quite a while in that training environment before your mind opens up and you start thinking about open guards. And I understand why the reality of closed guard is a lot of it is clinging onto the person and holding them down. And it's true that it doesn't feel dynamic when you're fighting someone in that manner, but closed guard is super effective. And the reality of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is most people who start Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they start it because they want to learn to defend themselves. And in that environment, closed guard is a super important thing to learn. Now, maybe if you have no interest in self-defense and you come into jiu-jitsu wanting to be an IBJJF world champion, then maybe then it makes sense to start with open guard. But I have mixed opinions on not starting with closed guard because of its applicable nature for self-defense and because it is a very, very useful guard. However, open guard is much more dynamic. Mm. You can't just hold a person there. You have to be fluid. And there are so many variations of open guard. And a big part of open guard is being able to switch from one to the other. Open guard also has the benefit of often being very good at distance management. The trick with close guard is when you're clinging onto your opponent, yes, it's possible to break their posture and hold them down, but you're also sort of on the bottom grabbing onto this person. You know, you can deny some of their movement, but you're also restricting your own movement as well. I'm reminded of the lockdown where in half guard, you tie your legs up to one of the other guy's legs to prevent him from being able to move freely. It is a good position, but it's flawed because by doing that, you're also restricting your own movement. And I think closed guard does have the same weakness. Yeah, I see. I see why Rob takes that approach. And I think it's because he wants to fast track his beginners to really focus on guard retention movements and understand framing and distance management as opposed to just clinging on. And it is true that when you have beginners in the room, you should probably, you know, teach them those defensive concepts and movements as opposed to like building closed guard attacks. You know, you could get really good at closed guard, but if someone you go against someone who really understands good body positioning, they know how to break the closed guard, then it's going to be a pain in the ass. You know, once once they pop that guard open, if your entire game from day one has been closed guard and you don't have open guards to to fall back on, then you're missing a huge part of the game. And I think the guard retention movements, the way that Rob sort of forces people to learn that at his academy from a from an early stage 
stage is a big reason why they're, uh, you know, why his team is, they understand jujitsu really well. Uh, and, and it's a pretty deep team that way. Um, and we also got to remind ourselves, you know, we're talking about like when we started jujitsu, we, you know, fundamentally used closed guard quite liberally. Like uh, for me, when I was white belt, my entire game was like closed guard. And then I started picking up some half guard stuff. Back then, a lot of people weren't even passing on their feet, you know, like it was it was common for for people to start on their knees in training. Like it wasn't exactly the uh, the the sharpest and, and most current training methods. You know, it wasn't I remember it wasn't like high level concepts and, and learning principles for jujitsu. It was like, OK, you're in my closed guard now. Uh, I can work my stuff. But nowadays it's like, man, it's so hard to like even get to close guard sometimes because guys are always on their feet. They're always blitzing and really doing a good job of, uh, of changing angles and, and ranges and stuff like that when they're passing. So it's like, how do you even get to close guard sometimes? Yeah. I think it's important to understand that we grew up in a different time <laughs> and jujitsu has evolved so much since then. I mean, I remember the day when my instructor sat us down and said, guys, Nobody passes on the knees anymore. You got to stand up now. And I remember thinking, stand up in the guard. Why would you do that? Like, you know, just sit on the guy's knees and pass. Yeah. That's the way it's always been. Let's but, just start on our knees. <laughs> yeah. But the game has completely changed. Like it used to be the fact that when you were a jujitsu person, if you wanted to go to guard, you could just go to guard and you could close your guard on the guy and he would just sit there and hang out in your guard basically as long as you wanted. But people both in jujitsu and in MMA, they don't necessarily do that to the same way now where they'll just kind of basically sit there on their knees and let you hold them. A big part of getting out of close guard is getting to your feet and close guard becomes not only less effective, but also straight up liability if the opponent gets up to their feet because it makes it much, much harder now to be able to control them. Like we've talked in the past about body tethering and how you never want to be in a situation where you're tied up to your opponent and they can throw your weight around. That's what happens with closed guard once your opponent is able to stand up. You know, you don't want to be in that situation where you've got closed guard, your opponent stands up and they pull you up with them and now you're floating in midair. Like that is not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. So because that strategy exists now where people just try to avoid closed guard and when they get there, they try to stand up, open guard becomes so important. And something that my instructor said was closed guard, closed mind. And I understand where that comes from because when you're trained to sit there and cling to the person and hold them down, it makes your game less dynamic. That's not to say that won't work. It's not to say you can't frustrate your opponent, but open guard has a lot of different options and you have so much more fluidity from there. Mm -hmm. Now, you could also argue that it's a lot harder to learn to get good at open guard, but the reality is anyone who trains for a modicum of time is going to get good at that. So there's pros and cons to both approaches. Of course, the best approach is learning both, right? Because it's so contextual. I think that you're going to be doing yourself a disservice if you only learn closed guard or you only learn open guard. I used to think that just like what you said, like, oh, it's it's harder to learn open guard. Fuck, I don't even know if I think that anymore. Like, I actually find it really difficult to use closed guard now. It's just, you know, you go against someone who's bigger than you or someone who's really strong or someone who understands good posturing and, and body positioning. Closed guard can be fucking difficult to make shit work. And maybe it's because I'm used to open guard where there's tons of movement and grip switching and and 
flowing through different positions and, you know, you can invert and you can move around and you have freedom to, to sort of back out as you please and reset. Whereas close guard, you can't really do that. Like it's more about breaking the guy down and hand fighting. So it, it, I find it kind of frustrating to, to use the close guard. And, and it's definitely an area that I need to go back and, and really reinforce because it is such a fundamental old school position and it is so effective if you get good at it but fuck like i get stuff there sometimes and it's real frustrating hold on a sec hold on a sec let me grab a new ice pack for my balls i'm gonna leave this in matt's first ice pack has warmed up and he's yelling at his cat who speaking of blue snowballs (laughs) it's freeing Doesn't it get uncomfortable to just sit with your balls on an ice pack? I mean, it might be okay for five seconds. Exactly. I move it around. I actually try and keep it over like uh, large veins and arteries because that's where the blood goes, like my wrists and stuff. But anyways, I was saying how I think closed guard is actually a pretty damn hard position to get good at. So the thing about closed guard is that... Yes, if your opponent wants to sit in closed guard, it can be very effective. But the challenge is if your opponent really doesn't want to be there, Mm. it becomes hard to force them into that game. Now, you can do it if you're really, really strong and you have a really good clamp. But I agree with you that I find it hard to hold people in that position. And when I am in someone's closed guard, I find it relatively easy to break. So I think that's kind of one of the issues with closed guard is that most people spend so much time training how to break out of it that it does get very, very challenging to hold people in there. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about open guard. So Matt, today... The topic du jour is De La Hiva guard. Yeah, made famous by uh, Professor Ricardo De La Hiva. Actually, while well, you still currently train at a gym that is of the De La Hiva lineage, I used to train there as well, uh, and then I moved. But yeah, De La Hiva guard, you know, very common guard, especially amongst uh, the, the current jiu-jitsu scene, and especially at the lower weight classes, you see a lot of open guard with De La Hiva hooks and whatnot, and... Uh, it's very interesting guard. You know, it can be played so many different ways. And, you know, we wanted to talk about reverse De La Hiva as well, which is basically, it's a completely separate guard, but it involves the leg hooking as well. So, I mean, I, I don't know about you, Steve. You, you've you mentioned how you don't like De La Hiva, right? You're more of a single leg X player. You like the inside channel. I like De La Hiva, but I find it very, very hard to actually execute a sweep from there. I like to use it as a distance maker. Mm. I guess we should probably point out that if you're relatively new at jiu-jitsu and you're not familiar with what this guard is, it's going to be really hard to explain this over audio. So probably you're going to want to go and look it up and maybe watch some video first so that you at least have a point of reference in terms of what we're talking about. But generally... But isn't all our shit like that? <laughs> yeah. But I think with open guard, it gets especially like that because there's so much focus on where your hands go, where your feet go. At a high level though, De La Hiva guard is basically where you use your leg as a hook on the outside of your opponent's leg. Um, you basically use it to kind of check and bend their leg and really what you're trying to do is you're trying to force them to look and turn their body away from you so they can't directly face you. You're kind of reaping the knee. Like if we're being honest, it's actually kind of weird that De La Hiva guard is IBJJF legal because it is a knee reap, right? The idea is you're using your foot as an outside hook to bend your opponent's knee so that they're forced to turn away from you. And then when they turn back towards you, you kind of wobble them back and forth. A big part of De La Hiva guard is to keep your opponent 
constantly off base by pushing her legs out, pulling them back in to force them to wobble. And then you exploit that off balance by eventually tipping them over or doing something else to them. Reverse De La Hiva guard is where instead of having a hook on the outside, you have a hook on the inside. So it's actually in some ways closer to something like butterfly guard because with reverse De La Hiva, you're not reaping the knee. You're kind of getting your leg underneath them and you can use that to elevate them, get to their back. Um, it usually is a position that goes hand in hand with inversions because there's a whole game to go from reverse De La Hiva to under to the person's back. Um, personally, I use regular regular De La Hiva guard a lot. Again, not so much for sweeping or submitting. I find it very hard to do that, but I like it as a distance maker because when your opponent is coming in close towards you during that engagement phase, usually it's a lot easier to just get into De La Hiva guard versus getting into something like a seated guard, right? You can play De La Hiva from a range. Reverse De La Hiva guard has never personally been a, a favorite of mine. And one of the criticisms of De La Hiva guard, and it is a valid one, is that it is very gi dependent mm-hmm. because, yes, the De La Hiva hook itself does not require the gi, but to be really effective, if you want to sweep especially or submit, you've got to be able to break your opponent down, and that's going to require, in most cases, a grip on a sleeve or a grip on a collar. Now, that said, it's not impossible to play it in a nogi fashion. I mean, I primarily don't rely on grips when I do it. And I know that Rob has an instructional DVD all about using De La Hiva Guard in nogi. So it can be done. But I think most people would primarily consider it to be a gi-based guard. Whereas actually reverse De La Hiva, um, I don't think is really restricted to the gi. I use De La Hiva Guard without the gi in training. I play with it in training a lot. I won't use it a lot in competition. And that's because I'd way rather have my hands being the first point of contact with my opponent as opposed to my feet. You know, if you're if you're playing a guard off your back, then you're basically giving up your feet as levers, right? Now, how how you pummel your feet and where you put your feet kind of dictates how you're going to off balance and how you're going to prevent your opponent from grabbing your legs in passing. But as a general rule, I'd way rather fight from the seated position. And then, you know, if I get blitzed or I have to concede to my back, then I can fall into like De La Hiva and things like that. But I'm not going to lie. Like I when I was a purple belt uh, and and all through my brown belt years, I was using tons of reverse De La Hiva. And I, I still know guys who use so much reverse De La Hiva. Even there's tons of leg lockers still like John Callistein, um, even Oliver Taza. These guys use reverse De La Hiva a lot to get into leg and entanglements but i find it fucking hard as hell especially uh without the gi i find it really hard to get to use this guard on a lot of guys now because people are becoming so aware and they're so good at shutting down that inversion when they're pummeling their legs uh just given all the fantastic instruction that's come out nowadays and it's like i I think it's actually becoming kind of an easier guard to shut down nowadays when i first started using it it was kind of new And, uh, I was hitting everyone with it. Like, you know, in training, it was like an unstoppable thing, but nowadays I go against most of my guys and they, they have answers for it. So it's funny how, as the, as you know, the game progresses and, and it evolves, you know, things that used to work don't necessarily work anymore. And that's kind of just 
a common thing that happens in grappling. Yeah, definitely. I fully relate to that. And it's funny how Delahiva and reverse Delahiva, despite having basically the same kind of general concept, like you're using a leg hook, they're totally different. And the strategies for using them are totally different. If you go into reverse Delahiva thinking it's just Delahiva guard, but on the inside, well, you're going to find yourself to be very, very wrong. It is a completely different strategy in terms of how you play it. And I agree with you 100%. I don't use reverse Delahiva because most of reverse Delahiva involves inverting underneath the guy. And that is a powerful way to get a hold of their leg or to get to the back. But there's kind of two general challenges with that that I don't like. One of them is... Um, you know, just regarding inversions, I just don't like the idea of being under the guy on top of my neck, but also on top of that, like you mentioned, it's relatively easy to shut down reverse Delahiva, especially in the gi. And if you get shut down in that position where you're going underneath the guy and then they get a hand on your collar or they get their hand around your head, you're in a very compromised position. We've talked previously about committed techniques and how for any technique, you need to know what the worst case scenario is. Reverse Delahiva is a very committed technique. If something goes bad, you're in a super compromised position. Whereas regular Delahiva guard, not so much. With regular Delahiva guard, you're playing from a distance. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't work out, then you're not necessarily compromising yourself terribly. But one interesting thing about Delahiva guard, which you mentioned, is that Delahiva guard is a guard where you're putting your legs out first. And that means that your opponent can grab your legs if you're not good at leg pummeling, which is obviously not desirable. If you put your legs out in front of your opponent and they grab those legs, then you're setting yourself up for some sort of pass. Now, you can get very good at leg pummeling, so this can be countered, but it's something to be aware of. And Delahiva guard feels kind of old school in that sense because you're on your back fighting with your legs out first versus a seated guard where you're coming at your opponent with your hands first. Mm-hmm. And just like any open guard, the the goal is basically always to have your opponent off balance. I remember uh, uh, BJJ legend and alleged rapist Ricardo De La Hiva used to say uh, it's the jello guard and you always have to off balance your opponent um, when you're playing it. And if you don't off balance your opponent, then you know, basically you're trying to attack someone who's within full alignment. So that's usually never a good idea. So the, the, the concept behind Deli Heva guard or Jello guard, as it was first called, is to always have them wiggling back and forth, playing with their center of gravity and then moving their base. So we should probably actually clarify here because I don't think we can get through an episode without talking about this. Uh, for those who don't know, a few months ago, Ricardo Deli Heva was accused of sexual abuse by one of his former students, Claudia Doval. And if you've watched the interview, it's pretty heart wrenching. (laughs) Like I personally am not really equipped to look at someone and tell whether they're telling the truth or not. But I came away from watching that interview thinking, wow, this is a super credible accusation to the point where, you know, I've kind of been wondering, is it still a good idea to even call this guard Delahiva guard anymore? Or do we need to come up with a new name? I mean, I don't want to get too much into that because that's not really the topic of the episode, but it's kind of hard to talk about Delahiva guard without talking about the person behind it. Yeah, for anyone who listened to uh, Claudio Doval, her uh, testimony there, I mean, it was 
it's pretty hard to deny. And his response was basically, oh, I, uh, you know, people look up to me and lots of people respect me. It's like, why don't you just deny the allegation? And, you know, there was details in her story that were so vivid in nature that I think it's personally for me, I'm all about fair trials and letting the, the courts settle things and innocent until proven guilty. But man, that was seemed pretty obvious to me that something had happened there. And then I heard recently that he he got rid of all the women's classes. Yeah, I looked into that. There was a follow up later where one of his students, I think, stated that he had shut down all women's classes and Delahiva or his team have come out and since clarified that and said something to the effect of, oh, well, we didn't really shut down women's classes. We're doing a restructuring to try to make things better for women. But I don't actually know what the current situation is there. And it is a little bit troubling where when this kind of accusation comes out, first, you kind of go on about the importance of honor and integrity. And then your female students start saying that they've been kicked out of your gym. Like it's a very troubling situation. Now, this is still kind of not really breaking news, but this is a relatively recent thing here. So in a few months, we might learn more. But yeah, for for now, at least for my opinion, it doesn't look good for Delahiva. Yeah, they're, they're really doing all they can to make uh, classes better for women. So from now on, Ricardo Delahiva will not be teaching any of the women's classes. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand how you can empower women by not letting them come to your class. But anyway, um, that said, though, his guard is awesome. Yeah. Love that guard, though. Uh, and like you mentioned, you know, it's I, I know I've heard Keenan talk about this before, like that the actual Delahiva guard is considered more of a longer range guard than reverse Delahiva. Reverse Delahiva is kind of one layer towards passing, whereas Delahiva is, you know, a layer of greater range, I guess you could put it, because your feet are kind of both in front of your opponent. But once that, you know, if the free leg gets stuffed in, then you're kind of conceding into a reverse Delahiva or a headquarters position of sorts. And, you know, we were talking about gripping and whatnot. I mean, re- I think reverse Delahiva is much more suited for no gi because you don't really need grips on the gi per se. It's more about getting underneath their, cent- their center of gravity and off balancing them. Whereas Delahiva is very grip based. So like, like you mentioned, collar ankle, uh, collar sleeve double sleeve. These are kind of the main gripping schemes from that position. And then learning how to flow and put them all together is kind of the, you know, that's, I think what makes open guard tricky is learning the, I don't know how you want to put it plays, right? Like I kind of, I kind of think of it as plays like in a, in a football game. And one of the best resources I can recommend would be Jonathan Thomas, who actually just put out a new instructional with Stefan Kesting on the open guard. And I'm here to say, you know, I've, I've pumped his tires before on the podcast, but Jonathan Thomas has some really great gripping concepts, some stuff that's really helped my game because I've become kind of a no-gi guy of late and I'm trying to get back to the gi and I've realized like, wow, my gripping game needs like work. You know, that that's that's really the difference I find between the gi and the no-gi is, is the grip battles that go on even before you lock up like a real guard. There's tons of grip fighting and you need to have certain plays and you need to know, you know, if you're in Delahiva with collar sleeve and your opponent stuffs your middle, your leg in the middle, then you need to take your Delahiva hook out and, and swing it back on top for a lasso. So you have a foot in front of your opponent. Like, you know, I I've, I've been passed many times because I just didn't understand that basic concept because in Nogi, it's, it doesn't really exist, right? Like it's not really an issue. So yeah, Jonathan Thomas is awesome. Check him out. Definitely. Uh, he's got that instructional with, uh, on grapple arts. Yeah, I would say that open guard is primarily about fluidity. 
And a mistake that I made early in my grappling career was that I tried to play open guard similar to the way I would play closed guard, which is I would try to insist on a position. Like I would decide I want to do this particular guard and I'm going to try to force it to happen. But a big part of open guard is understanding that because you're not fully controlling your opponent, you can't always totally dictate where they go and what they do. So to be effective, you have to be able to fluidly transition between all of these different options when the time is right. And that's a totally different mindset from just sitting on the bottom and holding on to the person like a koala, right? You can't do that in open guard because your opponent has so much more room to maneuver. And to your point about gi versus no gi, one of the other things about reverse de la Hiva is in the gi, it's much riskier to play reverse de la Hiva because your opponent can just grab your collar when you go for it. So when you're trying to invert and go underneath your opponent, if they just squat down and grab your collar, you're really in a bad position because they'll probably pass from there. It's a much stronger grip. Whereas in Nogi, if that happens, I mean, they might be able to get their bicep to your head or something, but you're much less stuck than if your opponent grabs your collar. Regarding the distance from Delahiva versus reverse Delahiva, I like Delahiva guard as a range management tool. I like to use it almost like a jab because you can use it from a distance. I like to use it to keep my opponent at bay when they're trying to get in close to me and kind of get to the position that I want to be. So if my opponent is sort of far away, the thing I like about Delahiva is that you can latch onto that and you can use that to keep your opponent at a distance and then set up for something like a seated guard or a single leg. That's where I like to use it. I don't have particularly good grip strength and my fingers get messed up really easily and I don't like that. So I don't play the whole game where you try to grab their sleeves or their collar and break them down. I tend to shy away from those guards, but grip strength is super important if you want to play Delahiva and actually get sweeps or submissions from there because if you just have their leg, it's probably not going to be enough to actually sweep them. You need another control point and that's probably going to be the gi. Yeah, I totally agree with you that it can be difficult to, you know, go get these big open guard sweeps like Tomanages and stuff from Delahiva. I use it, I think, similar to the application that you're speaking of, like a, a sit-up guard. And I find that the, you know, the Delahiva and the half guard kind of meet through the sit-up guard, especially I've talked before about flossing the lapel through the legs and taking that grip behind the butt. That is like such a powerful grip. It works great from the Delahiva. That's one of my main go-to attacks. If I was going to go to the sit-up position, that would be my main game and start hunting either collars or or the far sleeve. But my other option would be, you know, you, ha- you have to know how to go in all directions. So coming out the back in like a uh, um, like either a barambolo type situation or uh, like a shotgun sweep where you're feeding that deep Delahiva hook in. I think a prime example of that would be uh, Nicholas Marigali, who's he always plays that Delahiva X position. He always, you know, when he gets that prime 90 degree angle on his opponent, he fires that deep Delahiva hook through. And then from there, it's like it's really difficult in the gi. If you, if you have good grips on the upper body, man, you can totally sweep the guy from there. I just I just realized something. This ice pack that I have on my head is like kind of leaking. I thought the ice pack was on your taint. Yeah, I moved it from my ball sack to my head. <laughs> that doesn't sound hygienic. Okay, hold on a sec. Don't worry, I'm wearing a mask. Let me just discard this. <laughs> All right, so Matt is back to get his third ice pack of the show. Sorry about that. That was gross. So 
In terms of Delahiva, reverse Delahiva, if you're a beginner and you're trying to get into these positions, something that you mentioned on an earlier episode was this concept of critical control points, which is an idea you took from cooking, which is that for really anything here in jiu-jitsu, there's going to be a few specific things that you really need to make sure you get right. For Delhi Hevegard, what would you say the critical control points are? Well, definitely grips on your opponent. Like if your hands are not dictating grips, then there's going to be issues. Like I wouldn't play Delhi Heva just off my back with my hands not doing anything because then literally you're just like, come past my guard. You know what I mean? The critical control points are getting to your, your grip. So the three main schemes that I use are collar ankle, collar sleeve, and then double sleeve, almost like you're playing a spider guard and then you transition to Delahiva. So you need, your hands need grips. One thing that I, I made a mistake doing for years was I would play Delahiva just thinking that the hook was kind of the, the critical control point and that it was all about the hook and the way the foot hooks, but it's actually not, you know, you want to get your butt close enough to them where you're kind of underneath them. And uh, a good landmark to think about is the, the hamstring of the foot that you're using as a hook. So the Delahiva hook, that hamstring should be like flush with their shin. And then that will really show that you are close enough to really get under them and off balance them. Whereas if you don't close that space, then there's going to be a gap between their shin and your hamstring. And you're just not going to have the the connection that you need to have. So, you know, if you're if you're if you're controlling either the pants or the ankle or maybe you're going like a deep wrap with your arm and you're grabbing your own thigh in the Delahiva, or you could maybe be doing the underhook Delahiva grip. Like these are all different gripping schemes. And I think John Thomas covers them in his uh, instructionals, but they're like, they all have different options, different attacks, uh, different ways to control the ankle. And they're really, you know, kind of subsystems of their own that should be looked at because they're all applicable. Like for example, I, I never used to grab the pants because I found that, uh, you know, like my hands were getting real weak or whatever. But then I started thinking about how I was gripping and now I use the pant grip all the time and it's just different. You know, you're not grabbing the ankle directly. You're grabbing, uh, you're grabbing the ankle by proxy, but there's definitely certain strengths that you can get from grabbing the pants that you can't get just from grabbing the ankle. So it's now, it's now a grip that I've sort of evolved and used. And another critical control point would be your Delahiva hook that leg needs to be vertical. Your femur and your hips need to face straight up. So, you know, a common defense when you're using Delahiva is that your opponent will start pushing your knee down. And if your knee gets pushed down, a lot of the time your hook becomes weakened and, and your Delahiva guard starts to starts to fall apart. So you need to be able to like keep that femur pointing vertically. So that way you have a good frame and your hips are uh, at a good angle to absorb the force. And and the last thing I would say is, you know, it's not really a critical control point per se, but to understand the difference between using Delahiva, using the foot as a hook and just using your femur and your knee as a frame. So there will be times when you play Delahiva where it's not only is it ineffective, but it's unsafe to really force your hook in. Like so I've, I've seen guys blow their knees out because they're forcing the hook when they shouldn't be. And the guy, you know, explosively hip switches or whatever, and then their foot gets caught in there. And uh, that's not really the control point. The ability to transition from the hook to just using your leg as a frame, you know, you can play a strong Delahiva without even having that hook inside. And then when the time is right, you put the hook back in and understanding when, how to manage the range in such a way 
that you can like regulate that transition. That That is a huge part of Delheave as well. So leg position of the leg that's doing the hook is so critical when you're playing Delaheva guard. The big thing you brought up there is that your leg needs to be pointed vertically with your knee pointing up. And that is so important because if your knee is not pointing up, if your knee is flaring out to the side, it's very easy for your opponent to squash that leg. And that probably means they're going to pass. Another thing I would point out in terms of just general pointers a common mistake that people make with Delaheva guard when they're trying it for the first time is they try to thread their hook leg in really deep. Like mm. they try to get it so that their toes are like way between the other guy's legs and weaving over even onto the far leg. That's where you can start to get knee injuries. And the other problem too is it exposes your foot. Like I've seen people do toe holds from there where if the opponent does a Delaheva guard and they stick their foot in too deep, the person on top can actually pull the foot through and toe hold while standing. So you've got to be careful doing that. Where you want to stick out your legs, there are some sweeps that require you to stick your legs out straight through. You only want to do that once you've basically got everything lined up and you know your opponent is ready to fall over. You don't want to do that while your opponent still has good base. I would say that with Delaheva guard, really the goal, if you take all of these points and tie them together, I think it is to reap your opponent's leg so that they have to look away. If you were to kind of take all of these things we've talked about and tie them together, I think that's really the thing that makes Delaheva guard work with the caveat that it's not sufficient to just make your opponent turn away. You have to make sure they can't run away because if you just reap their leg and they can just turn around or backstep and get out of there, then that doesn't really work. But the goal is to force them to turn away and hold them in that position and off balance them. That's ultimately what all of these grips are about when it comes to making the Delaheva guard effective. Mm -hmm. And like we mentioned before, transitioning through the grips, understanding, you know, okay, if this grip gets broken, where's this hand going to go next? Like you mentioned earlier about how grip strength really helps play this guard, which is true. But um, I think what's even more important is knowing how to transition through grips. So if you feel that a grip is about to be broken, you know what your next play is going to be. You know exactly where you're going to put your hand next. Like you mentioned when you first started playing Delaheva, how you would play it like a static clamp based guard, like a closed guard, where you basically like, you know, you get your Delaheva guard and okay, now I'm playing Delaheva guard. I'm just, and, and you're not really off balancing. You're just trying to actually make the Delaheva guard position. And that's not how you play it. And I, and that's when I teach Delaheva guard to beginners, that's kind of the main thing I see is they try and get to the Delaheva hook position, but they're not thinking about how they're affecting their opponent's base posture and structure. So when that happens, it falls apart real quick. And then you're like, fuck, this Delaheva guard doesn't work at all. Well, it's because you're, you know, you're, you're trying to hold an open guard on an opponent who is in full alignment. That's why it's not working, right? So finding that off balance and creating that jello movement, that's sort of the I think that's where it can be done best. And, you know, just kind of like what Dan Hur says, like try and off balance to create limb extension so that your opponent has to post on the ground. If they do that, then you're going to have all types of opportunities to come up or or to transition to different guards and think about how you're going to sweep and, and even submit. Yeah, one of the things that's great about Delaheva guard is that you can use it against opponents of almost any size because the reaping on the leg, it's going to work on people of any body type. Now that said, you need to make sure you're not overly focused on just having the hook. 
The hook is not meaningful unless you're able to actually break alignment. And in this case, that means forcing your opponent to basically look away from you and then getting that jello movement going where by pushing and pulling, you're able to keep them off balance. That's basically the fundamental power behind this guard. Now that said, without good grips, it's hard to make this work. And I have found anyway, and I'd be curious to get your opinion, that against bigger opponents, it's very hard to get effective collar or sleeve grips and keep them. I find I can get the hook and I can grab the ankle and that will work. But I find against opponents who are really tall or really strong, it's hard to grab their collar or their sleeve and actually control them. Yeah, I, you know, against against really good guys, it's going to be difficult to do that because their first thing is going to be to break grips, and that you gotta you gotta go into these guards, you know, during the engagement phase and realize that hey, when I'm going against someone good, they're not just going to let me grip them; they're totally going to start taking part my grips and then passing instantly before I can regrip them, and that's where that blitz sort of play happens. So it's really important, like I mentioned to to think about getting your initial grip and then, you know, having a game that you play off from there. Like if I grab your collar, I have a really good collar ankle De La Hiva game, right? Let's say, and then I grab your collar and I have your ankle, but then immediately you break my collar grip and I have no idea where to go to next. Yeah. Your De La Hiva guard is going to be pretty ineffective. You're going to get blitzed real quick. But if you, you know, if you have a collar and ankle, and you know you try and off balance them and then they base and then they break your grip right away you need to know where that hand's going next so a lot of the time depending on the angle i might go to the belt if i'm sitting up into a baron bolo situation although i'm not a big fan of bolos off of the uh i'm not a big fan of boloing off of the belt grip much i like the collar but what a great option would be would be to go to sit up guard if i feel like they're breaking my my grip there i will extend my legs sit up and then immediately start trying to feed the lapel through the legs. So I have like a backup plan. Let's say I'm passing the lapel through my leg, through the legs, and I have the foot on their hip, and then they start controlling my foot on the hip and they want to stuff that leg inside. I know right away now's a good time as they're trying to control my pant leg on the hip. Now's a good time to try and control their sleeve because I know where the sleeve will be. It will be controlling my leg, right? So you have to kind of think about things like that. That is where the gi game becomes really confusing for some people. And, uh, it's just reps, right? And, and, and if you have someone who has really good knowledge and they, like I say, I keep referring to it like a football game, like they have good plays and they know where are good routes to run so that they have good strategies in this position and they know how to exit safely and they know how to sweep safely and blah, blah, blah. That's where you're going to get really good at Delahiva. Where you're not going to get good at Delahiva is kind of like, well, I'm just going to take my grips and then hope something good happens. That's not really a great way to play it. Well, that's a really good point, which is that when someone is going to break your grips, you have to kind of know that's going to happen and seed the position and be ready to move on to something else. Like if you just sit there and basically let your opponent break your fingers, that's really not a good game plan. Mm -hmm. It's better to know when it's time to move on to something else. And the example you gave there is an awesome one. If someone is focusing on trying to break your collar grip, probably what they're doing is posturing up. And if they're doing that, that's a great opportunity to sit up and go for a single leg. And you can also floss where you grab the lapel and pull it between their legs. So there's a lot of options there. And rather than 
insisting on a grip that your opponent is going to break, it's better to feel that energy and get up with them and use that opportunity to transition to something else. Yeah, for sure. And and one thing that, you know, you mentioned how it's really, you know, these open guards and these grips are really hard on the fingers. And hey, I totally agree. It is hard on the fingers. I don't have particularly strong fingers. In fact, it's one of the things that I wish that I had was like really strong fingers, really strong knees and playing in the gi with these open guards. It does take its toll, right? But if you structure a, if you structure your game so that you're never really fighting the grip breaks, like I, I truly believe you, it should never be a battle where it's your grip strength versus the guy's grip breaking. Like if he's going to break your grips, if he has a solid two on one on your hand, don't get married to that grip because he's going to break it and then he's going to dominate your sleeve, right? Which would be better is if you feel like they're, they're establishing a grip on your hand and you know, your grip's going to get broken, save yourself the damage and let go and move to something else because then not only do you do you prevent injury but you also kind of get ahead in the tempo now you're a grip ahead right another thing to think about is if you're playing a guard like Delahiva and you're constantly pulling so you're leaning back you're trying to like elevate your partner you have grips on them and you're trying to pull them on top of you your hands are going to get fucked because you're actually working against your grips. You're like, you're, you're kind of extending your body. So all the stress is going to your fingers. Whereas, like I said, if you, if you start mixing up the sit up guard, you know, if you, if, if, if I have a grip on your collar or your sleeve and you, you posture up and I sit up with you, it actually takes a lot of the tension out of the fingers because I'm following the grip, right? If that makes sense. And, and, uh, and then, you know, I can always let go of that grip and immediately start transitioning somewhere else. So taking your grip and leaning back as hard as you can and pulling constantly, not only is it not really good for your fingers, but it's not how you want to play that guard. You want to, you want to work in multiple directions, pulling and sitting up and pushing and switching grips all the time. Yeah, it is that fluidity that makes Delahiva guard work. And that is very important to consider with your fingers, because if you just play Delahiva guard relying on your finger strength, not only is that bad for the long term, but also it's just not mechanically efficient, right? If you are playing this card in such a way that the thing that is making it work is your fingers, well, like that's not the strongest part of your body. You're far better off relying on alignment breaking, using the strong parts of your body. Like for example, using your Delahiva hook to off balance. Those are the things that are going to make the difference. If the thing that is holding your Delahiva guard together is the fact that you are using grip strength, that's really not using the best tool that you have at your disposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But definitely is a great guard to connect different situations and to, you know, I, I use Delahiva all the time because I, I'm not necessarily trying to always sweep from there, but I use it to, to cycle through my grips and through my, my open guard until I find something that I like. Quite honestly, most of the time I'm, I have a pretty simple open guard game. When I'm not trying to play lapels, which I'm it is also very difficult, but like sit up guard and collar drags and ankle picks. Those are like my main 
go-to sweeps from the bottom and they're great plays to have. It doesn't have to be complicated necessarily. You just need to know when your grips are safe and when they're not. Yeah, I use Delahiva Guard as a setup for a lot of things. I kind of use it like an opening salvo because you can play it from a range, sort of like a jab. If I'm fighting someone who's coming towards me, I get that Delahiva. I'll do what if I recall correctly, Rob has called the hamstring press, where basically you use your Delahiva hook to hamstring press the guy and that forces him away. Yeah. And then he has to take a step towards you. And in that moment, I like to set up. So I'll use that to get to sometimes I'll do a single leg, but often what I'm going for is instep guard, which I really like. So I use Delahiva guard as a distance tool so that I can close the distance and go to the game that I really want to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great tool that he shows where you're doing that hamstring extension. Again, I'd recommend Rob's Nogi Delahiva formula for those who just want to just diversify their Nogi game and also to have a better understanding of of gaining Kazushi from the Delahiva. But that is a great tool, especially if the, if your opponent does, uh, if they turn their knee out and start shutting down your hook, that extension is a great way not only to enter like a sit-up position, but it's a really good way to also pull them on top of you because now... You know, now we're getting into playing their center of gravity and using momentum, right? So extending your leg and it basically buckles their knee. Like it's almost like a hyperextension movement that straightens their leg. And so they get immediately, they feel the reaction, the need to push back into you. And this is a great opportunity to start working taint sweeps and things like that. Yeah. And if you're not a deviant, you could just go to single leg or you can go to instep guard. Yeah, but I'd rather stomp someone's penis. (laughs) 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 Well, one of the nice things about the hamstring press is that it's a very effective tool even against larger opponents. And of course, Mm -hmm. the taint sweep and the dick post are also effective techniques against larger opponents. Yeah. And also female opponents. (laughs) Well, I have a question for you. We've talked a lot about Delahiva guard. Regarding reverse Delahiva guard, what would you say the critical control points are for that? Mm, That's a really good question, too. So the foot that's hooking. It's really important to have good connection on your shoelaces and and on your toenails, cupping the hip. Uh, Another big detail is you need to have a corkscrew configuration where the back of your knee is fused to the back of their knee and there's no space in between. So it's like it's, it's hard to describe, but basically you need your ass outside of their foot. So when you put your at like in Delahiva, a lot of the time your butt will be on the inside of their foot. When you go to reverse Delahiva, your butt will be on the outside of their foot. And this allows you to really get that that good regulated tension between your leg and their leg where there's it's completely flush along the backs of your legs. It's kind of hard to describe over over voice. But um, another thing would be, you know, there's many ways to play this as well. I used to put my my free leg, the one on the outside, I would put it on the hip. The problem is, is that this opens up for esteema locks and things like that. And it's just a free lever for your opponent to grab. So now I actually do something that uh, Oliver Taza showed me, which is I pummel it underneath the reverse Delahiva hook. Not only does it hide your leg from footlock attacks and leg drags and things like that, but it really allows you to reinforce your Delahiva hook and get a lot of Kazushi by kicking your opponent in the back of the hamstring. So that's a really good position to put that foot. I like that a lot. And then your arm that's hugging their leg, to my knowledge, there's kind of 
two main positions that this arm can go in. It can either go in an underhooking position or it can be in an overwrapping position. And they're both great. They both have, you know, their strengths and their weaknesses. I think that the underhooking position, you don't need as much Kazushi to go into the Kiss of the Dragon, which, you know, if, you, if you're going to if you're going to play a lot of reverse Delahiva, you should probably build a crab ride game because you're going to end up behind them in the crab ride or in leg drags and stuff. You need to know what to, what to do from that position. So either you're going to have your hand in a, well, you're going to, you're going to have it fixed to their leg in some fashion, either an overwrapping or an underhooking position. And another thing is having your elbow, the arm that's grabbing their leg, that is basically on the same side as the Delaheva hook. It needs to be under the Delaheva hook. You know what I mean? Because then, then it prevents the knee cut pass. If it's just your, your reverse Delaheva hook on the inside and then <clears throat> there's nothing underneath it, they'll be able to knee cut through that. But if you have your arm as a frame and a fulcrum underneath that del- reverse Delaheva hook, then they can't really knee cut through because as they do that, you're able to invert to the inside. I hope this makes sense. I mean, I should, I should probably make a video on this, to be honest. Yeah, we should probably make a video for that. That would actually be a good thing to put up on the Patreon. It's hard to visualize I would say that in terms of the things that are critical for reverse Delaheva guard, and with the disclaimer that I am not an expert in reverse Delaheva, but one of the things that is important is you have to control the other leg. You've got one leg where you have a reverse Delaheva hook, but you can't ignore the other leg, and it's going to be your arm that's controlling that. If you're not able to secure the other leg, your opponent is going to be able to base and move around. Another critical control point is your own head. You have to make sure that your opponent is not able to grab your collar or secure your head because if they do that, they're going to be able to shut down the whole thing. One of the issues with the underhooking position is that your arm does get trapped there. If you're really good at inverting and you send it right away, then it's not usually an issue if you can get underneath your opponent quick enough. But if your opponent knows this is coming and they sort of angle out it and then, you know, they recognize that your arm is in that underhook position, you can get cross-faced pretty bad. And uh, you'll just be eating a cross face in, in the bottom half guard for a long time. So that's kind of a shitty situation as well. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge with reverse Delaheva guard is that you are exposing yourself to getting cross faced. And when you play it, I think it's very important to understand where your opponent's hand is, the hand that's going to be close to your head when you invert, because if they are able to get control of your head, they're going to be able to shut you down. So that's something to be very cognizant of if you're going to play reverse Delaheva. Yeah, like I said, it's a great guard, but I do find it difficult to get there now, especially because, yeah, guys are just so good at like, like honestly to shut it down. If you kind of just like pinch your knees together, it's uh, on top. It's really hard to go inside because the legs are now shut down. Whereas before I remember, you know, maybe like when I was starting, it was just sort of becoming popular and people didn't really do that. They didn't, they kind of just left their legs wide open and gave you the inside position. So, and it was a lot easier to invert on guys back then. I remember than it is now. So, you know, you do still see reverse Delaheva, but you got to be really slick with how you set it up. Sweet. Anything else you want to cover? I think that was a really awesome, comprehensive chat on both Delaheva and reverse Delaheva guard. Any 
closing thoughts? Um, not, you know, not really. I think, I think it would be good to maybe just do like maybe a brief rundown on some of the reverse Delahiva and Delahiva plays that I like to do some of my main things. And maybe I'll put that on for the Patreons. I'll make a video. Yeah, that would be awesome. And if you're on our discord, just shoot us a message. If you have any questions, we're always happy to help provide feedback, answer questions, or even critique or comment on footage that you provide. So To cover the mental models that we talked about here on today's episode, we talked about types of guard. If you recall from earlier on in the show, we talked about how you can classify the different guards by type. And Delahiva guard is generally a hook-based guard. The main mechanic is that you're using one of your legs, and particularly the shin on that leg, as a hook to track and off-balance your opponent. We talked about body tethering. This is where you clamp onto your opponent and give them the ability to maneuver your body. It can be a very dangerous thing to do, first of all, because you're ceding your alignment to your opponent, but also because it opens up the possibility of slams, which can happen accidentally or on purpose. With closed guard, you encounter this quite frequently, but with open guards, you generally don't see body tethering happen a lot, and that's one of the benefits to them. We talked about committed techniques, uh, particularly how with reverse Delahiva guard, it is a very committed technique because if something goes wrong, when you try to invert under your opponent, you're putting yourself in a very compromising position. Either you're probably going to wind up on the bottom and half guard getting smashed, or you're going to wind up having your guard passed with a knee cut pass. Whereas with regular Delahiva guard, you tend not to experience those issues. I would consider it to be a less committed technique than reverse Delahiva guard. We talked about critical control points, the concept that for any particular technique, there's going to be key details that really matter, whereas the rest can kind of be adjusted on the fly. We talked about how for Delahiva guard, um, one of Matt's comments was that the grips are so critical for Delahiva guard. And one of the things that I commented on was that really the focus for Delahiva guard is to reap your opponent's knee such that they can't face you. And then when they try to face you, that's when you start wobbling them and you play the jello guard. For reverse Delahiva guard, the control points are the shin connection that you have on their leg from underneath, also tracking and controlling the other leg with your hand and making sure that your head doesn't get grabbed. And we talked about dictating the pace. Matt mentioned that one of the challenges with grip fighting in Delahiva guard is if you insist on keeping a grip that your opponent is in the process of breaking, first of all, it's going to (laughs) hurt. And also, you're allowing your opponent to dictate the pace because you're now playing defensive. It is better to take the tempo back and switch strategies to something that's going to be more effective so that your opponent is forced to react to you rather than you being forced to react to your opponent. Yeah, that's why it's important to know those plays, right? You got to know if you take the collar grip and they break that grip, where are you going right away? Like, what's your what's your next play? You can't just wait because then obviously they're going to gain tempo on you. So you need to know if that grip is broken, where does it go? And uh, and same thing, if you're on top passing, you need to know what your opponent wants. If they're grabbing your collar and you break that grip, like... You need to know what what is the most common reactions, like what are they going to be doing next? And a lot of the time when I break grips on top, I actually like to keep the sleeve because then it prevents them from uh, re-gripping me again. So yeah, something to think about. I have to admit, although I'm not a big fan of trying to insist on grips when your opponent is trying to break them, 
I am a little bit envious of the people who just have ridiculous grip strength. <laughs> yeah, they're out there, you know, and I I don't really have strong hands, but lately I've I think it's because my gripping game is improving a lot. I found actually my my fingers aren't really in pain as much af- even after gi class. So well, one of the things my instructor pointed out was that it's not so much about just using your fingers. If you're only using your fingers on a grip probably you're going to hurt yourself. But when you grab the grip, usually there's some other mechanic or detail that actually is where the real power comes from. It's not just about using your hands. So as an example, like for spider guard, for example, it's not just the fact that you've grabbed the guy's sleeve that's controlling him. It's what you're doing to his bicep or the rest of his arm. That's where the control actually comes from. Because if you're just relying on your fingers, then he's going to break that grip and probably hurt your fingers. Yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, sometimes it can be like a turn of the wrist or something else that makes the grip way tighter than, uh, you know, than, than what it is. You're absolutely right. It, it, it certainly almost always is not just the finger strength that's doing it. Although some people do have really strong hands and they abuse it. <laughs> I train with this guy who is like a 70 year old Indonesian man. Who's a, I think a second degree black belt. He's tiny, but his grip strength is unreal like if he grabs onto you you're just not going to break it (laughs) and some people are like that they have just incredible grip strength and that's one of the challenges when it comes to breaking grips is there will be people out there who just due to the power of their grip strength when you go to do a grip break maybe it would work on most people but it's just not going to work on them and that's why if grip breaks don't work you need to have a fallback strategy for how you're going to deal with that grip anyway topic for another day mm-hmm. cool do, do we have any questions or anything actually we do so we have a question from one of our listeners hey steve i watched your episode on entrepreneurship i'm guessing when he says watched he means he must have seen it on youtube and i'm guessing when he says hey steve he means hey steve and matt <laughs> poor Matt like you're the one who actually knows jujitsu but you never get the love that's okay anyway hey Steve and Matt I watched your episode on entrepreneurship and I love the honest opinion that you guys shared I'm an instructor at a gym and I love teaching jujitsu I've had success with jujitsu tournaments and I feel that I have an understanding of the ups and downs that a BJJ practitioner may go through in their journey I would love to be able to open my own gym one day but I love the team I'm a part of and happy to be a part of their success. I work full-time at a different job and part-time teaching jiu-jitsu. I've been biding my time trying to add to my BJJ accolades and saving my money. I have thought of the idea of waiting for their retirement to avoid tension and keep my relationship healthy with my head instructor. Is there advice you and Matt would like to share? What would you suggest for a similar situation? Love your podcast and have been a long-time fan since episode one. So basically, this is someone who is looking to take the next step, wants to create their own jujitsu business, and it sounds like the main point of friction is they're concerned about damaging the relationship with their current team, particularly the head instructor, which seems to be very positive. So my whole thing with this, and I know people who are going through very similar things, although they're not waiting for someone to retire or or whatever, they're more just kind of worried about having that conversation. But my recommendation is don't base your destiny upon someone else's feelings. Don't let somebody's opinion stand in the way of your destiny. 
I totally understand how someone would not want to leave a gym and be very happy being a part-time instructor there and being part of the team. After all, who knows how long they've trained there for. They probably helped build that team up a lot. And now they're thinking like, well, if I open up a business, then I'm going to have to give all that up. Like I won't be seeing the same people anymore. And that's the truth. You know, you're going to have to start from scratch and you're going to build it essentially a new family, a new team. And yeah, those, those people that you knew are, are most likely going to stay at the old location. So it is a, it is a tough situation, but ultimately, you know, if it's your destiny and you want to have your own school, you know, not, nothing should get in the way of that. Otherwise, you're just going to be working a full time job forever and teaching part time. I would, I would hate to have that situation and then, 10, 20 years go by and I regretted never opening a school. If you feel it in your bones that you want to own a school and you want that responsibility and you want to be an entrepreneur, then, you know, I think the only way to satisfy that need is to take that plunge. And in terms of, you know, smoothing things over with your instructor or whatever, one one thing that black belts and gym owners need to realize is uh, there comes a time when, you know, you could you could bring a student from white belt to black belt and then one day they want, they need to go like they want to go start their own thing or even if, you know, I mean, hopefully this isn't the case, but even if they switch teams that, that I could see there being some friction. But if, if I have a student that I, you know, they become a black belt under me, I kind of need to know that I, I don't own them. Like there's, there's no reason why they're obligated to stay at my gym you know, just because you mentor them for years and you, t- you know, you show them all your, all your stuff, all your knowledge, you don't own them. You don't hold dominion over them. And part of being an instructor and a professor is to be happy for people. And when you see somebody who wants to, they, you know, they desire that role as well. They desire that instructor's role and they want to have their own business. They want to make a life and a living out of jujitsu. Like if your instructor can't be happy for you for that, then I, I don't know that that's really a relationship that really is as meaningful as you once thought it was, because truthfully, they should be happy for you. You know, they, it's un, it's unreasonable as a gym owner to be bringing people up through the ranks and then getting sour because they want to go do their own thing. It's just you can't do that. And if you do, if you do that as a gym owner and as a black belt, then you're going to, you're going to make a lot of enemies over the years. You know, you're, you're going to build all these people up and put a lot of time into them. And then you're going to be sour because eventually a lot of them want to go and do their own thing. And, and I think the best thing is just to be happy for them. Yeah, that is such a critical thing about what makes jujitsu great. If your instructor really understands jujitsu and really understands what makes jujitsu great, then they understand that it's about giving back and building success for the people around you. If your instructor doesn't want you to open a gym because they see that as a threat or they don't want to compete with you, then they don't really understand what it means to be an instructor because part of being a good black belt is creating other black belts and creating a quality team. And that means that you have to help these people on their journey of growth. I mean, Imagine seeing this in other walks of life, right? Like imagine if your dad told you, hey, I don't want you to go to university because I don't want, I went to university and I don't want you to be as good as I am. <laughs> like it would be preposterous to say something like that. The advice you gave is really good too about not letting someone else make the decisions surrounding your dreams. That's a mistake that I've made where on jobs, 
maybe I wanted to get promoted and I thought, well, if I just do everything the right way and I do everything I'm told to and I go above and beyond, I'll get that promotion I want. And one thing I realized is that, yes, part of success is working hard and doing a good job, but there are situations where the people who need to make the decision to give you that opportunity, there are people who are just going to not see you in that position and not be willing to support you. They might like you. They might like you in the role that you're at, but they might not be willing to support you in getting to the next step. And if you live in a world where you let other people make decisions about your progress, then you're denying yourself growth opportunities because, you know, to your point, you wait for this guy's retirement. I mean, that he might go until he's 80 years old, right? I mean, you shouldn't put your dreams on the back of someone else's whims. Yeah. And like I said, if you can put a gi on, you're not retired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you really want to open a gym, and if your instructor really is the kind of high-quality character that you think he is, then he will support you. And as Matt mentioned, if he doesn't support you, then I think you really need to question whether the relationship was what you thought it was. Absolutely. And yeah, it sounds like you kind of, have your mind made up and that this is what you want to do. But like I said, just imagine yourself five, 10 years from now, if you never opened it, how would you feel? How would you feel going into work every day? And then, you know, going in and, t- and teaching at this gym, but knowing that none of it's really yours, you know, it's it, for me, I'm, I'm kind of a control freak when it comes to stuff like this. And that's why I was very driven to have my own outfit because I just wanted to control everything and any failure or success that I might experience, I wanted it to be a hundred percent on me. And yeah, I I feel like if you're going to, if you look ahead and you envision yourself years from now and you have any shred of regret or you, you know, you, you wish that you, you wish that you didn't have the job that you're working now that you could just dedicate your life just to jujitsu. That's how I felt. You, you should go ahead and do this. That's my opinion. Well, thank you so much for the question. And thank you to all of the people who support us on Patreon. As we say, that's really the thing that makes the needle move on the show. That's what keeps us afloat. Um, takes a lot of time and money to create this product. Hopefully you get value out of it. And if you do, please do support us there. It really means a lot to us, both financially and emotionally. And we try to make it worth your while. We provide a lot of value to the people on Patreon. Like we talked about earlier, if this requires further discussion in terms of the Delaheva Guard and the reverse Delaheva Guard, if we were to create videos to explain it, we'd put it on Patreon and make it available there. And we're always open to feedback as to ways that we can make the Patreon experience more valuable to you guys. So again, if you get value out of this, the best thing you can do to support the show is support us on Patreon. To do that, you go to patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. Again, that's patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. Thanks again, guys, for all of the support we get. It means a lot to us. Patrons, you guys rock. Thank you so much for keeping us afloat. And we're going to keep trying to give you guys the best content we can. Really appreciate it. And if you want to learn more about the concepts we talk about here on the show, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we've got a database of these concepts, as well as an easy form to contact us with any questions or comments you have. You can also support us by picking up merch. We've got a store at bjjmentalmodels.com store where you can pick up gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. 
You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join to get on our mailing list. This is where we send out supplementary content once a week with articles and more long form material. Often we use that as a vehicle to expand on the concepts that we talk about on the show. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Great chat. Matt, you got to go change your taint bag again. (laughs) Yes, I'm sweating profusely from my taint and asshole. Well, I will let you do that. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Take care, you guys.